The Guardian. Welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee. Me, Claire Armistead. And me, Sean Kane. This week, the Vietnamese-born poet Ocean Vuong joins us to discuss his prose debut on Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. This examination of the violence at the heart of immigration to the US has already been hailed as the latest great American novel. American identity for refugees does not begin when the refugee steps on American soil. It begins when the first bombs start to fall in Vietnam. In other words, American citizenship begins with American foreign policy, that those we destroy as a country end up on our shores. And that's something that we have to reckon with in order to know where we're going. It's not just a book about the destruction in American history, is it, Sean? It also explores the destructive nature of the English language itself. Yeah, it's a, it, um, the whole book takes uh, the form of a letter that stops and starts, written by the son of an illiterate mother. He's writing in English because he knows she won't understand it. So he has all these things that he wants to say to her, you know, things that would be tough for a mother to hear, you know, about his drug use and his sex life and the sort of ugly realities of, of uh, his life. But because she can't uh, speak English, it's sort of, it's kind of an act for him. A way um, of hiding it. Yeah, yeah, and also a way for him to have a sort of degree of openness that he could never have if he spoke to her in Vietnamese. She's from Vietnam and she's the daughter of a Vietnamese woman and an American GI. The whole book is really about access to words and, you know, when you don't have access to words, the pain that can come with that, um, you know, whether you do speak English but you don't have access to um, the ability to, to speak the truths that you want to and also if you don't speak a language like English and how isolating and painful that can be as well. So in the case of his mother and grandmother, their experience in America is sort of documented in this letter. It covers the whole kind of, of that that era, does it? Yeah, so um, it's very autobiographical uh, to Ocean's life. It's sort of about a young boy who comes to America only speaking Vietnamese and can build English very easily. And the difference between that experience and the experience of his mother, who you know doesn't speak English and doesn't really have the willingness to learn it as well. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting to hear about how he's used, once again, he's used his autobiography because I first encountered him with his um, forward prize winning poetry collection, Night Sky with Exit Wounds. Again, that's, that's an awful lot about his mixed race parentage, the fall of Saigon, arriving in America. But um, he also had this wonderful thing about where autobiography and fiction, or in this case, poetry, depart. We, we were talking a lot about his invocation of fathers because his his own father left the family shortly after they arrived in the, in the States. But his, his poetry collection was full of fathers. And he said, personally, I'm always asking who's my father. Like Homer, I felt I'd better make it up. The Japanese have a word for it, yugen. When you have so little, you have to imagine it. It's a sort of space of potentiality. Yeah. And I just think that that is such a powerful idea. And, and it also sort of so well encapsulates why this is a novel and not actually a memoir. Yeah. Well, in, in the book, the main character, Little Dog, his father isn't present at all in the book. And the absence is actually not noted on that much. But there are other fathers that are present in the book in both positive and negative ways. I was interested in the fact that you, we introduced him, or Richard, you 
introduced him as a poet because actually he's you know we have one collection of poetry and one, one novel. novel is he he's a poet equally a novelist, is he a novelist? <laughs> he's a writer but how does that how does that poetical talent manifest itself in the novel it's very lyrical it's very much what you sort of when you imagine you know what is the literary novel you know what is literary fiction this is very much literary fiction and some people will like that and some people won't like that they might think it's flowery i think it was the perfect it was on that really perfect line of you know, beautiful language, like language that is noteworthy. You know, you don't just read it and ignore it. You make note of how beautiful the language is, but it doesn't overwhelm the book. You're not sort of going, oh, Christ, why did you use that word? That's just, <laughs> you know, that's too much. You're always going, oh, wow, he's, he's chosen this word very precisely. And it's for reasons that could be even just how the word sounds out loud when you read it alongside the preceding word. You know, it, there's that element of... of you know, a song-like, sort of a poet-like, poetry-like um, nature to all the words in this novel. The sort of the poet mind is very much there. He's only thirty years old. It sort of seems unbelievable that he's only thirty. It's years quite old. unfair, actually. <laughs> Our producer that was recording the interview when we uh, when he came into the studio hadn't actually heard of him, and then afterwards was messaging me, going, "Oh my god, it's so unfair," because <laughs> he'd been looking him up. And uh, just how incredible his career is. Like he's had two books and you can basically say both of them are amazing achievements and both massive hits. And he, cre- and he teaches creative writing. And he teaches creative writing. <laughs> and um, he's actually kind of a rock star because I, um, I went and bought another copy of this uh, novel on the same day that I did the interview because I gave my advanced reading copy away. So I went to a Waterstones and bought a copy and I... Uh, was just hovering nearby the display and this bookseller ran up to me and she was just like oh my god we love him so much he came in the other day and he signed all these books and stuff like that and I kind of didn't want to say to her oh well I've met the guy <laughs> because I was like that would just break her heart so I went oh great okay well, it sounds really good and <laughs> I bought a copy <laughs> when, when he did his he, the forward prize which he won um he he had to give a reading and um he was utterly he was just sort of like a magical presence but yeah. he didn't do much banter and when I talked to him afterwards he was he said uh, oh well I, he said I'm hopeless at reading uh, I'm hopeless at <laughs> presenting stuff so he said I just climbed inside the book for a little while oh that's a lovely <laughs> it was very, it was so sweet do you think he even speaks beautifully in, in image in, in the images like a poet but yeah. but somehow not pretentiously yes so let's hear from Ocean Vuong now Ocean Vuong, welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. Thank you for having me, Sean. It's a pleasure. So sometimes when we speak to authors and uh, they come in with a novel that has sort of clear autobiographical elements to it, um, sometimes when you bring it up, they can be kind of standoffish about it and mm-hmm. say, you know, well, I don't want you to read it that way or I don't think I see those links mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But I think uh, anyone that's read Night Sky with Exit Wounds, which was your first collection mm-hmm. of poetry, um, who will then come to this book will see links uh, between that collection and then inevitably end up going back to your to your life story. Right. Um, and it, it's funny in that way that poetry can sometimes be seen as uh, confessional or um, the autobiographical elements are sort of fine, whereas mm-hmm. novels, it, it's kind of a different beast. Right. Is that something, because um, I've, I've read that you kind of wanted to challenge... Uh, you wanted to sort of invite the autobiographical reading, but in the end, sort of refuse it at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm informed by the rich American tradition of the malleable historical eye, uh, starting right away with Melville and then Whitman. The eye is is uh, transitory, it's loose, and it's up 
to um, the, a futurity. The negotiation of its solidity in fiction is up to the hands of the artist. And that was always the American project, I felt, because part of the American mythos with its uh, original colonization of, of the continent was that here we must make a new myth for man as we know it uh, in these new lands. And it led to horrible policies uh, with native genocide, but in literature, um, it led to the possibility of transformation. Mm. And I felt that that wasn't a powerful place to start. For a writer of color, the autobiographical novel is an opportunity because now's our chance. You, know, you arrive at the page with a chance to articulate dignity for a milieu that uh, raised you, um, a milieu that might have deemed uh, valueless by the larger populace or even invisible or not considered. And I think it is a, a tantalizing opportunity for a lot of writers of color. Um, and I think a lot of them do it. Um, Toni Morrison, um, you know, uh, James Baldwin, um, we, we, we approach it as a chance to say, now's my turn to say that these bodies, these bodies of color are important. Um, I, I could have made put them in medieval Europe. I could have made it more uh, sci-fi by putting on Mars, but I want to in investigate these bodies as worthy subjects of literature. And so on Earth, we're briefly gorgeous. It's, um, I was left sort of feeling that it is actually really overwhelmingly a book about America as opposed to Vietnam. Yeah. Could you sort of lay out, for anyone who hasn't perhaps read Night Sky with Exit Wounds, um, your own story and then sort of Tell us the story about Little Dog. Yeah, part of the book's obsession is to recast American identity. That is something which is born out of violence. The origins of the country is a violent one. And its contemporary history is also violent. War fuels its economy. And the military-industrial complex informs who becomes its citizens. And part of my argument in this book is that American identity for refugees does not begin when the refugee steps on American soil. It begins when the first bombs start to fall in Vietnam. And in other words, American citizenship begins with American foreign policy, that those we destroy as a country end up on our shores and becoming part of of, uh, of our culture and uh, are the fabric of the nation. And, and that's something that we have to reckon with in order uh, to know where we're going. And Little Dog is part of this. Um, his life is, comes right out of war. Without the war, his mother wouldn't exist. His mother is a, a mixed race woman, a, a, a daughter of a, a white GI and a, a Vietnamese farm girl. And I, that seems like a precarious, muddled space to think and write in, but it, it excited me because it was so faithful to American identity, which is incredibly, inextricably complicated. There are no polarities. There are no easy sides. And as a writer, you know, the messiness is where I thrive, I think. I want to go in there and get tangled up in it. Mm. And so then... With with little dog, so he's uh, he's born in he's born in Vietnam, but then uh, mm -hmm. he moves to Connecticut with his mother and his grandmother, um, and the relationship between them, uh, in so many ways, uh, I loved reading about their interactions with each other because they were so intimate, um, on a way that perhaps maybe 
you know, white children with their parents don't have that intimacy, mm. um, the physical intimacy. But then uh, it's, it's, it's quite a strange dynamic between the three of them because it's both hierarchical in that the mother yes. is uh, quite violent to little dog. Yes. But then it is also strangely equal in other ways in that little dog is her translator mm-hmm. and he is... Uh, he works as a child. He's sort of an old soul in a very little boy's body. <laughs> right, right. Um, is that, um, I mean, because because of the echoes of yeah. uh, Little Dog with, with your life um, yeah. and you having moved to America mm-hmm. with your mother, um, is that sort of, is that something that you see in yourself, a sort of uh, growing up before your time because of your experiences? Yes, yes. Ch- child, you know, it happened twice um, for me. Childhood as uh, an immigrant, you realize that because you can speak English first, you're the first in the family to speak English, you now have this tool that makes them visible. Mm. And at one point, little dog says, uh, I put on my English mask in order for them to see me and therefore you speaking to the mother. And I think that's power. Mm-hmm. And it, it's incredibly uh, dizzying for a child of seven, eight, nine to have suddenly the most power um, and access. The English language in America is a passport. Although you've arrived, your, all your papers are in order, um, the, the, the way you speak permits, uh, uh, allows you to enter rooms and spaces and, and garner dignity and respect, mm-hmm. uh, which can lead to care. Uh, can lead to progress, and uh, meanwhile you're still a kid, right? You're st- you know, you still have to be respectful, and and the adults are still the adults, and so that oscillation can be quite disorienting. And I think that's part of the child of immigrants and immigrants themselves experience in America is a disorientation, which is why the book begins almost uh, as if one encounters debris. It, it begins with pieces of vignettes scattered throughout the first chapter and before the book stabilizes you, you encounter this as if uh, the wreck of a of, of a of a uh, of an explosion or something mm. when you came home that night after grandma lon and i had eaten our share of tea rice we all walked the 40 minutes it took to get to the sea town off new britain avenue it was near closing and the aisles were empty you wanted to buy oxtail to make way for the cold winter week ahead of us. Lana and I stood beside you at the butcher counter, holding hands as you searched the blocks of marbled flesh in the glass case. Not seeing the tails, you waved to the man behind the counter. When he asked if he could help, you paused for too long before saying in Vietnamese, Dui bò, an có dui bò không? His eyes flicked over each of our faces and asked again, leaning closer, Lan's hand twitched in my grip. Floundering, you placed your index finger at the small of your back, turned slightly so the man could see your backside, then wiggled your finger while making mooing sounds. With your other hand, you made a pair of horns above your head. You moved, carefully twisting and gyrating, so he could recognize each piece of this performance, horns, tail, ox. But he only laughed his hand over his mouth at first, then louder, booming. The sweat on your forehead caught the fluorescent light. A middle-aged woman carrying a box of lucky charms shuffled past us, suppressing a smile. 
You worried a molar with your tongue, your cheek bulging. You were drowning, it seemed, in air. You tried French, pieces of which remained from your childhood. Derrière de vache, you shouted, the veins in your neck showing. By way of reply, the man called to the back room, where a shorter man with darker features emerged and spoke to you in Spanish. Lon dropped my hand and joined you, mother and daughter twirling and mooing in circles, Lon giggling the whole time. The men roared, slapping the counter, their teeth showing huge and white. You turned to me, your face wet, pleading. Tell them. Go ahead and tell them what we need, you said. I didn't know that oxtail was called oxtail. I shook my head, shame welling inside me. The men stared, their chortling now reduced to bewildered concern. The store was closing. One of them asked again, head lowered, sincere. But we turned from them. We abandoned the oxtail, the bumbo way. You grabbed a loaf of Wonder Bread and a jar of mayonnaise. None of us spoke as we checked out, our words suddenly wrong everywhere, even in our mouths. And it's such a good scene, I think, to uh, demonstrate the barriers that exist between characters in this book, um, but right. also just between migrants and uh, the sort of white American experience. Right. Right. Um, and it's not even just a barrier in language, but also a barrier um, in, in understanding. And uh, particularly, uh, I was thinking of when Little Dog comes out to his mother right. and doesn't want to use the French word uh Pede, yeah, um, which is the uh, French word for pedophile, but mm -hmm. is the word for queer, yeah, uh, in, yeah. In, in Vietnamese, right, right, um, which is really shocking to read for someone like myself that has no education in either language, right. But then you can perhaps see how that that word has sort of travelled and been amal amalgamated into different languages, but also right. how uh, traumatizing that that might be, right? The 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 traumatizing toxic relics of French colonialism remains and before bidet we didn't have a word for queer bodies we call them magicians we call them sorcerers they were seen as sites of power similarly in the Native American tradition where two spirit folks were seen as clairvoyants and in the same way in the Greek classic Tiresias you know, someone who switches genders, travels through time, is an oracle. Um, and and so uh, Roman Catholicism really uh, brought shame onto these bodies, and language is a powerful way of uh, strangulating possibility. And, and I think that's why the book is obsessed with it. Language is almost another character mm. here. You know, when you have a recipient of a letter who won't uh, receive it necessarily, the pressure now falls on language. Is it enough? Is the sentence uh, a true architecture to hold our thinking and feeling in this world? And the, the, the whole sort of structure of that book, in, in it being a letter to a mother that won't be able to read it because she, she doesn't read English, yeah. is there any uh, sort of purpose at the end of this letter is it simply the act of getting it out on the page that is the purpose of it or is it that the hope that mother might read it at some point i think that would be a bonus if the mother reads it uh, of course it's a novel still mm -hmm. and i think 
at the end of the day, there's uh, two people on stage, you know, one of them speaking to the other. But it is a stage, and there's an audience. And I think that was important, that the, the subversive act for this novel was that, yes, it's one yellow body speaking to another. But when anybody encounters the book or reads it, the you suddenly becomes the reader, right? So whoever encounters it uh, steps into the position of this mother. And in that way, the, the, the book is also a letter to everyone. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's part of the malleability of the language. And I think at its bones, this book embodies the essay's main thrust, you know, which uh, which is essayer from the French, to try, to attempt. And it's really taking language to the task. And I think this is why the language oscillates. Metaphors abound to see. And the metaphor is so interesting to me because it's a departure from the temporal timeline. It's a, it's a, it's a wide swing and then it's a return. And in that way, it's almost like a searchlight. The book is constantly searching and panning the field for a way out, for a way forward. And in this attempt, it casts the language uh, towards the mother as a way of self-knowledge for the writer. And it, it's also posing that really, there's a really interesting question about, um, particularly in America, I guess, the use of uh, violent language to describe things that are good. Yes. Can can you sort of explain that for me, yeah. for listeners? Um, you know, uh, often it is uh, for boys, but it's now part of the lexicon of the culture to use the language of destruction to celebrate each other. I'm slaying it. <laughs> I'm killing it. I'm smashing them. Even in intimacy, or the attempt of intimacy, is the language of conquest. You know, I effed her brains out. I owned that girl right? Uh, she's in the bag. And so the language of conquest and possession is how we celebrate our successes and how we celebrate intimacy. And that arrives and creates an incredibly toxic way of thinking. And I do think that as much as we say the future is in our hands, I think it's actually in our mouths. Mm -hmm. And the way we speak to one another will affect the way we live and think in the world. And you don't have to be a writer to change the way you consider language. You can do it right away. And and I think in that sense, young folks and folks in queer communities and communities of color are always on the fringes of standardized English and therefore open and free to manipulate it and change it according to their terms. So now we say, I'm living for that. I'm living for that dress. That gives me life. That movie gave me life, right? And so we're starting to find a new way to think and speak to one another and hopefully to live towards in the future. That must be quite fascinating for someone like yourself that is obviously so invested in in language, uh, but particularly with poetry, because poetry is so considered about yeah. word use. That must be fascinating for someone like yourself to watch and see that, it's that beautiful. evolution. It's beautiful. I mean, language is always changing. It, it's, it's a waterfall. I mean, if we were to speak in original English, you and I would be speaking in Chaucerian Middle English. <laughs> but we've gone so far from there, and that's a good thing. It, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like language is kind of like the, the Wikipedia in the air where we're all changing it as we speak. And it's incredible to think, even the phrase Netflix and chill, right? <laughs> yeah. What a great time capsule of all of human progress in one phrase, right? Mm -hmm. To use 
to understand Netflix, you need to understand, you know, uh, high-speed internet. <laughs> you know, just some movies, culture, the miniseries, and then chill is a whole other thing about relaxing using uh, frigidity and temperature. That's <laughs> in there. And the whole thing is supposed to be towards a romantic, intimate night. Right? Yeah. And so it's so coded and so complicated when we think about it. It's going to sound so old in about 20 years. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think so. <laughs> just like Far Out, right? <laughs> yeah. But Army. at that time, that was so important because mm. Far Out came out in the 70s. What was happening in the 70s? The, the moons, the, a spaceship, NASA, right? the moon landing. And so when you said, oh, that's far out, that was an incredible radical thing to say. <laughs> um, and then now it's, you know, passe. <laughs> we'll be back with more from Ocean Vuong after the break, and we'll be discussing what makes a great American novel and why his debut fits the bill. I'm Emma John, and I'm sorry. I lied to you. It's the I said we'd be happy if England won the World Cup, but lost the Ashes. It's not true. I want it all. I know it's greedy, but positioning the urn next to the World Cup on Ben Stokes' mantelpiece would make this the ultimate summer for English cricket. So join us on the spin as we turn ourselves into emotional wrecks all over again. It couldn't be as nerve-wracking as the World Cup final. Could it? It's the spin! The spin is supported by NatWest. Welcome back. It was John W. DeForest who first used the term the great American novel in print back in 1868, though he was arguing that it didn't yet exist. Since then, it's a phrase that's been applied to Moby Dick, The Great Gatsby, Grapes of Wrath, To Kill a Mockingbird, Beloved, American Pastoral and Freedom. But what is it about a novel that makes it a great American novel, Sean? Well, I think this is really interesting. It's such a cool idea, actually, to think about it, because you do talk about the great American novel as a thing as opposed to like do we talk about the great English novel for example well they're all in the 19th century yeah yeah they? exactly <laughs> whereas the great American novel always seems to be happening it's sort of it's any book basically that reflects America back to itself and that can be in a positive or a negative way and that's a very cool thing to think about that you know Ocean's book is being held up and say that saying this is the great American novel and it's been out for like a month you know so that's that's a quite a cool uh, concept it's it's like a marketing tag though isn't it I rather like Sarah Moth the novelist's description of it in in Guardian Review last week as the one where the white male American literature stroke history professor has a midlife crisis and sleeps <laughs> with the student he despises thus ending the marriage to the wife he despises and obliging him to move in with the mother he despises but it's always been a very <laughs> sort of big thing. chunky very male kind of thing hasn't it but is it big to change now. Claire. Well, I, I was looking through um, various lists of that people have compiled of the great American novel, and most of them lists of about sort of thirty. There are only ever three women. <laughs> and there's <laughs> always Toni Morrison. <laughs> well, it's it's, it's uh, Toni Morrison, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and Harper Lee, Harper Lee yeah. basically. And so it is a really male construction. Yeah. I was thinking, why is it male? And it's male partly because it's about the construction of a heroic narrative of the self, which chimes with the narrative of the, of the country of the yeah. nation. I am the nation. Whereas women write about their personal lives or whatever. That's always the idea that women write about the personal Domestic and write stuff. about the political. Yeah. Well, that's nonsense. <laughs> it's, so you know, it's absolutely nonsense. Sorry, so what, so, so, so why, why, um, why is Annie Proust the shipping news? That doesn't tend to appear on these lists. Or Alice yes. Walker's The Colour Purple. Or Carson McCullough's The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. I always think that, that uh, the, uh, the omission of Alice Walker is such a strange one because that's, that's a perfect example, a perfect candidate. It's reflecting a, a truth about American history back to itself. And I 
think that's exactly what Ocean has done in this this book, is that it's partly set in Vietnam, but it's such a book about America and it's it's addressing this reluctance in America to address its obligation to nations, uh, other nations apart from itself. So when it gets involved in a war like Vietnam War, this idea that they don't have a duty to migrants and refugees that become a product of that war and uh, making them feel welcome in America. It's such an uncomfortable truth and it's an uncomfortable truth that lots of countries have to address, but it's the, the nature of America in world wars. It's the role of America in world wars that sort of makes this a particularly astute thing and it's a great novel to be coming right now when America's really having this quite horrific conversation at the moment about what is the nature of an American you know but it's also Little Dog is is a you know it's his story and it's his coming of age coming into self-recognition and it and I wonder whether there's not another thing going on which is the classic upward trajectory that mm. he's he's going to succeed in this country this country is going to make him yes and he is very much one of those what you would say, uh, what Nikesh Shukla might call the good Mike, the good immigrant, you know, he makes a real concerted decision at one point that he's going to lead a certain life and he is going to be successful. And then uh, this sort of central romantic relationship that he has with Trevor, Trevor makes the opposite decision. Uh, but Trevor is, you know, the all-American rural, you know, jock type. Who lives and, in a trailer and watches football on telly. Yeah, yeah, sort of. <laughs> Yeah, basically. Um, and it's it, there is that sort of thing that he is an American success story, but he is also the product of something of a, a terrible part of American history as well. Uh, you say you mentioned Annie Prue as uh, somebody who should be on this kind of list. Are there other contemporary novels that are great and American? I think it's very difficult to talk about more recent books. I think that actually you know talk, calling this a great american novel is 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 marketing is you know lucky old ocean he's got he's got his team firmly behind him which is not at all to take from 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 what from his achievement but um if you go a little bit further back then you begin to see the books that that are recognized as well as as well as actually achieving something so for example jane smiley's um a thousand acres you know lots of books a bit further back but i just think that to, to actually to call something that's just out a great American novel because it also gestures at it, something becoming canonical yes. which means that the society recognises it as a great American novel as well as it being potentially a great American novel. And so like in the past you had sort of basically old white guys you had you know William Faulkner, Philip Roth, Thomas Pynchon and they're being upheld for books that were you could say great critically but also great in terms of you know big hefty you know in terms of ambition. Yeah, in terms of, you know, big stories, you know, big page numbers, that sort of thing. Um, and I like this. I, I do think this is a good candidate for like a great American novel in that I think if we change that definition slightly and stop going for grand achievement and start going, it can be a small book, but it has an achievement in that it reflects America truthfully back to itself. And that includes all the bad stuff. I think... Then, then yes, it is a great American novel, um, and it's actually interesting that, that, that sometimes people try and go into those more recent books and they say like Dennis Johnson's Jesus Son, which is only 160 pages, teeny tiny little well, short or, story or The thing. Great Gatsby, yeah, but it can achieve something in you know a very sort of small amount of space and reflect America back to itself. Other candidates that you could say that are like more recent, you could uh, Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, which again is another thing about 
American migrant experience. And I would say is, again, a truthful reflection of what migrants go through when, they, when they're in America. That's returning back to what John W. DeForest was saying, which he, when he first used the term, he described it as the picture of the ordinary emotions and manners of American existence, but nothing to do with size. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, it's more about that idea of, is it accurate, accurately reflecting the state of the nation? And sometimes that does lead to a grand book, um, you know, American pastoral and lots of Roth, a lot of Roth gets sort of nominated for that sort of thing. Um, but On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, you could say it's a very small story. You know, it's very intimate. It's, you know, a very small cast of characters. It doesn't really travel very far if you sort of small pockets of uh, life in Vietnam and then this sort of Connecticut uh, life. But it's also saying something very big about America. And so it's both intimate but also grand. And I think that's why it's probably a very good candidate. It, in a way, asks difficult questions or says difficult things about America. It has been well received there, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And that's, that had made me wonder, actually, about whether, in, in terms of how well it has been received, whether it means that America has reached a real moment of maturity in some ways about its past and its willingness to ask tough questions about itself. I'm fascinated by the idea that maybe America might be start, starting to be ready to recognise this element of itself, that it has a really um, a sort of destructive force and past at the heart of it yeah. um, that it hasn't been able to recognise before. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's still young. Mm. You know, it's advanced technologically. It's advanced in a lot of its science and and of course certainly military um, but it's still premature in the way it thinks about the conditions of the self particularly with masculinity um, America was built on this myth of the self-made man and now we are seeing the price of that myth when it has no grounds when the grounds of that myth was on slavery and genocide it cannot hold. And it's amazing that it has held enough uh, for all these years, nearly 400 years, but now we're starting to see it disintegrate. And, and most people say, well, you know, ah, Trump came out of nowhere. What a, what a uh, terrifying, you know, origination that he just bursted onto the scenes. But he didn't. He is. The roots of Donald Trump is the root of America. This, this, the mythos uh, that ignores facts, the mythos of destruction, to use humiliation as a praxis for self-worth. You know, he's no different than the bullies of my childhood who were informed by a facade of masculinity. And I think one of the obsessions of this novel is to portray masculinity as something that fails all bodies, even those who wield it. Nobody wins when hegemonic masculinity starts to become a straitjacket for a national culture. Mm. And then, I guess, with this book, I mean, it, I've seen a couple of reviews actually announcing it that it's the great American novel, which mm. is quite an exciting <laughs> label to apply. That's surprising yeah. <laughs> to novels. But uh, do you think America is sort of ready to recognize that the great American novel might come from a migrant and a gay migrant? I, I don't know. I, you know, uh, the, I wrote it n not thinking about that. Um, I wrote it as as a way to enact something I didn't see. Um, and what I didn't see was that 
a novel is often charged with the responsibility, particularly a great American novel, is often charged with the responsibility to be the monolithic statement of a generation. And for me, a more faithful enactment of such a statement would be disintegration. And I knew that I wanted to write a novel that fell apart. I didn't want to arrive whole. I didn't want to step on the stage complete and give uh, an oratory, uh, uh, you know, a dictation of what it's like to be an American as a migrant or a queer person or what have you. I didn't want to arrive on the stage whole. Um, I wanted to arrive and show and perform a collapse which felt important to me. I came of age after 9-11, which is a physical and metaphorical collapse of the country. And the question of fear and terror was suddenly part of American futurity. And so, in a way, the book is a ground zero of American life. What happens if we have to fall apart in order to move forward? And I was informed in a very powerful way by queer theory. For so many queer bodies, we have to fail to, when we find pleasure. No one showed us how to do it. No one gave us the, the conversation about birds and bees. And when we fail, we actually move towards self-knowledge. We fail forward. And I think for queer folks and perhaps for Americans, failure might very well be the first step towards innovation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure. Ocean Vuong. His debut novel, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, is available from Jonathan Cape. Next week, we'll be speaking to Lisa Tadeo about female desire in the real-life stories of three women and what sexual desires are acceptable for men and for women. As always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or leave a comment on the podcast page. And as ever, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Richard Lee. Me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Chica Ayres. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.